the primary role of the prophet in the nation was to serve as God's mouthpiece to keep the kings and the priests accountable to the word of Yahweh, accountable to Scripture. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in South Lake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and Tom is continuing his current series with part eight of An Aerial View of the Old Testament. Last time, Tom began to examine the period in Israel and Judah's history when the nations were ruled by kings, very few of whom, however, followed and loved the commandments of God. So God raised up prophets in an attempt to turn his people back to him. But because of their sin and rebellion, they were overtaken and led into Babylonian captivity. Yet, as you'll discover today, even during one of the darkest moments in Israel's history, God sent a message of hope and grace. Let's join our teacher right now as we learn more from God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. The word prophecy is actually not a translation, but a transliteration. It has been brought over letter from letter, letter by letter from another language. Our English word prophecy comes from the Greek word prophetes. And that Greek word is made up of two Greek words, pro, which means before, and phame, which means to speak. So literally it means to speak before or to speak for another. And you see this throughout the Old Testament. More than 3,800 times in the Old Testament, the Old Testament writers introduced their messages with statements like this. The word of the Lord came to so-and-so. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. The Lord says, thus says the Lord. The Lord spoke. Hear the word of the Lord, etc., etc. Over and over again, that is their claim. A true prophet was one who did not speak out of his own heart, but rather as an appointed speaker for God. He was God's messenger, like Jeremiah 1 says, I have put my words in your mouth. That's what it meant to be a prophet. To put it another way, the prophet speaks a message for God. So prophecy then, listen carefully, is a revelation from God. It is not explaining existing revelation. It is new truth. A prophet is one who brings truth from God, who speaks for God, who gives divine revelation. Typically, that new revelation takes two distinct forms. It can either be predictive, that is, it's predicting something that's still in the future, or it can be moral or ethical. It can simply be a sermon, if you will, from God about how the people are living. And much of the prophets are filled with that kind of thing. Moses predicted in Deuteronomy that these future prophets, like him, would come. And he laid down three criteria for discerning a true prophet from a false prophet. He said in Deuteronomy 18, their predictions always come true. If their predictions don't come true, stone them. They're not true prophets. Be a lot of dead prophets today if we practice this. The second criteria that Moses gave in Deuteronomy 13, 1 to 5, was that the message that these prophets, a true prophet, gives always 
is in complete doctrinal agreement with previous revelation. Check them out against the Bible, is what Moses said. Check them out against the Scripture. It will not contradict what God has already revealed. Those were the two primary criteria for discerning a true prophet. And the third is that, in addition, Moses seemed to indicate that God would often authenticate the true prophet by empowering him to work miracles. Not always. And the fact that you could work a miracle was not in and of itself a sign that you were a true prophet because Satan, of course, can fabricate all kinds of things. So the fact that you could work a miracle, even if some of the guys today who claim to work miracles could work a miracle, that would not in and of itself authenticate them as God's messenger. These other primary characteristics have to be true. The true prophet's word was immediately accepted even when they didn't like it. Our Laird Harris says, Kings were humbled by their messages. Battles were won or lost at their word. The temple was not built by David, but by his son Solomon. It was rebuilt by Zerubbabel, all at the word of the Lord through the prophet. And the prophet rebuked their sins or encouraged them, but the prophets spoke God's revelation. But, and here's the key thing I want you to get, the prophets not only spoke God into the situation in the monarchy, but they wrote as well. They wrote God's revelation. They wrote it down. This is the way the Old Testament was constructed. If you go back to Deuteronomy 31, you find out that Moses wrote the first five books in a scroll. Then Moses dies. Joshua adds to the scroll, which is pretty amazing considering Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 4.2 that God was going to curse whoever added to his word. So obviously Joshua was mandated by God himself. That's followed then by a series of writing prophets in Israel. There are a string of prophets who, if you will, add to the scroll. The chain of verses shows us the tradition of the series of writing prophets in Israel. One example is 1 Chronicles 29, 29. Now the acts of King David from first to last are written in the chronicles of Samuel the seer, in the chronicles of Nathan the prophet, and in the chronicles of Gad the seer. And each of these other references I've listed here give other examples of the same thing. They wrote down the history of the kings during their ministries. That's why we have these great books. The, the one who pulled that material together pulled it from, under the inspiration of the Spirit, these documents that had been written. And then you have the major and minor prophets, we call them. By the way, when we talk about the major prophets, we're talking about them major because of the length of them, not importance. The minor prophets are the 12 prophets at the end of the Old Testament that were all put on one scroll because they were so small. So you have the major prophets, the ones that needed a scroll all to themselves, and you had the minor prophets that were all on one scroll together, but not because of their importance. From Isaiah through Malachi, all of these books, here's what I want you to get. Listen carefully. If you know the history we're going through, all of the prophets wrote during the flow of this history. And to understand the prophet and what he's saying, you have to plug him into his time frame. You have to think about to whom was he writing and what were the circumstances into which he wrote. So if you know the flow of history that we're going through in these five weeks, then you know how the prophets relate because they all wrote 
in these periods of history for specific reasons. Let's talk about them. Bible scholars break down the prophets by their relationship to the 70-year Babylonian exile. You have those prophets who wrote before the Babylonian exile. They're called pre-exilic. That makes sense, right? Before the exile. They wrote before 606 B.C. And here are the ones listed that wrote before the Babylonian exile in five, well, began in 606. So, Notice who they are. I put numbers next to these names of the prophets to indicate the approximate chronological order in which they wrote. We can't be absolutely certain, but this gives you an idea of who wrote what when. You see that Obadiah wrote his prophecy probably first, and it wasn't even to Israel. It was to Edom, a neighboring country. Jonah and Nahum both wrote to Assyria, to Nineveh, its capital. In the north, to Israel, you have Amos and Hosea, who ministered to the north. And then in the south, Judah, before the exile, you have this whole list, Joel and Isaiah and Micah and Jeremiah and Zephaniah and Habakkuk. Now, why is there a cluster of prophets who write and prophesy before the nation goes into exile? Well, in the ancient world, if you defeated another nation then what did that say? It said that your God was stronger than the God of the nation you defeated. And so think with me about why it would be important for God to speak through his prophets and to say, you're going to fall, you're going to fall, you're going to be carried off into captivity, you're going to be carried off into captivity before it happens. Not only was it a warning to the people calling them to repentance, but it was also an apologetic for the character of God. So that when these foreign nations conquered Israel, they could read that Israel's God had prophesied that they would do exactly what they did, and it was because of their sin. It wasn't that their gods were stronger. It was that Yahweh, the only true and living God, had given his people up to exile because of their sin. So there's this cluster of prophets who write just before the exiles, both in the north and in the south. And they're saying... You're going into exile. You better repent. Things are bad, but they're going to get worse. You better turn to God. Stop your idolatry. Stop your sins. And of course, they don't respond for any length of time at all. And the exile occurs. So then there are those prophets that are called exilic prophets. That is, they write during the exile from about 606 B.C. to 536 B.C. They wrote to the Jews who were in the Babylonian exile. And they are Daniel and Ezekiel. And we'll talk a little more about them the next time. And then the final group of prophets are post-exilic, after the exile, from 536 to 404 B.C. They wrote to the Jewish remnant who had returned from Babylon to the land of Israel And they are Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So all the writing prophets, here's what I want you to get. All the writing prophets ministered during the time of the kings, first and second kings, except the two that ministered during the exile, Daniel and Ezekiel, and the three that ministered after the exile, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And it's very convenient that they're at the end because that makes them easy to remember. They are at the end. 
Now, the primary role of the prophet in the nation was to serve as God's mouthpiece to keep the king and the priests accountable to the word of Yahweh. So when a prophet confronts the king, listen carefully, when a prophet confronts the king, there has been some deviation from the divine standard. And the higher the profile of the prophets, you know the greater the deviation of the king and the society from the standard. So the more you read about the, the prophets, the more you know the people and the king are not obeying God. Under Jeroboam and then Ahab and Jezebel, the worship of Yahweh is almost extinct. And so during that period of time, there are 14 chapters telling the stories of Elijah and Elisha, and those are clear evidences of the corruption of their times. Both Elijah and Elisha ministered in the north, Elijah in 1 Kings 17 through 2 Kings chapter 1, and Elisha, 2 Kings chapter 2 through chapter 8, verse 15. So you have the kings degenerating into worse and worse idolatry. You have the prophets intervening, confronting, exposing their sin, calling them to repentance, telling them God's going to carry them into exile, and eventually the prophecy occurs. And God allows his people to be taken into exile. Now, we're, we're used to the story, but stop yourself for a moment and think about this. The people God promised to make his own, his treasured possession, are now in exile. Out of their land, under the thumb of pagan dominating leaders. Why? Why did God allow the captivity? It's in one simple word, idolatry. During the reign of David, there was very little record of idolatry. But after his death, after David's death, the influence of idolatry grew dramatically. Solomon, of course, we looked at that last week. It really began in earnest with Solomon accommodating his foreign wives. And then when the kingdom split, in the northern ten tribes... Jeroboam set up these golden calves at Dan and Bethel. But the southern kingdom was no better, and you can read about that. But I want you to get a glimpse of just how bad things got. Turn to 2 Kings chapter 23. 2 Kings chapter 23. Now, what you have here in this passage, Josiah destroys Judah's idols. Josiah was the high point in the south. But I want you to see just how grossly the Canaanite gods had permeated Israel and her worship. 2 Kings 23, verse 4. Then the king, Josiah, commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priest of the second order and the doorkeepers to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels that were made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the host of heaven. And he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. He did away with the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had appointed to burn incense in the high places in the cities of Judah in the surrounding area of Jerusalem. Also those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun, and to the moon, and to the constellations, and to all the host of heaven. He brought out the Asherah, that's a an idolatrous form of a female pagan deity, part of the Baal worship, he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron and burned it in the brook Kidron and ground it to dust and threw its dust on the graves of the common people. 
He also broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes which were in the house of the Lord where the women were weaving hangings from the Asherah. This is how bad it got. And the prophet said, God has had enough. He has been patient. He has been patient again and again. So the prophets speak against the idolatry. They say, turn from your idols. Turn to the true and living God. But in the end, it was primarily Israel's idolatry that led to downfall at God's hands. The northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians in 722. Why? Look at 2 Kings chapter 17. 2 Kings 17. This chapter explains why it is that God has destroyed Israel or why Israel, the north, fell. Chapter 17, verse 7. Now this came about because the sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up from the land of Egypt. And they had feared other gods. They had walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel and in the customs of the kings of Israel which they had introduced. The sons of Israel did things secretly which were not right against the Lord their God. And it goes on and details her idolatry. Verse 13. Here's the conclusion. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all the prophets and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways. Keep my commandments, my statutes according to the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent you through my servants, the prophets. But they didn't listen. They stiffened their neck like their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. They rejected his statutes and his covenant which he made with their fathers and his warnings with which he warned them. And they kept on their path. They forsook, verse 16, all the commandments of the Lord their God. So, verse 18, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight. None was left except the tribe of Judah. That's why the nation Israel in the north was ended. What about the south? Well, the southern kingdom fell to the Babylonians in 586, about 150 years later. Why? Well, look at 2 Kings 23. 2 Kings 23 and verse 26. After we have all that Josiah did, and it was wonderful, he was the high point in the south. However, verse 26, however, in spite of all the reforms Josiah put into place, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath with which his anger burned against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him, previous king who had brought idolatry in a massive way. The Lord said, I will remove Judah also from my sight as I have removed Israel, and I will cast off Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen, and the temple of which I said, my name shall be there. So God sends his people into captivity. Did it work? Did he purge his people permanently from idolatry? He did. Never again is Israel dominated, even to this day, never again is Israel dominated by idolatry in the same way that they were before the Babylonian captivity. It was only after the 70 years of Babylonian captivity that Israel was permanently broken of her desire for Baal. What I want you to see, however, is in God's wrath, he remembers mercy. He proved his graciousness again and again, perhaps no more powerfully 
than during the darkest days of the monarchy, the reign of Ahab. What lessons can we learn from the life of Ahab, the worst of the kings in the north and the south? Well, perhaps you think this is the only lesson. Mistakes. It could be that the purpose of your life is only to serve as a warning to others. (laughs) It may be that's the only lesson we can learn from Ahab. No, it's not. There's a great lesson we can learn from Ahab. In 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 25, again, remember, these are, this is the worst. This is the greatest crisis. It says, Surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. But I want you to notice what happens. Go back to 1 Kings. 1 Kings 21. 1 Kings 21 and verse 20. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? And he answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring evil upon you, and will utterly sweep you away, and will cut off from Ahab every male, both bond and free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. In other words, I'm going to erase all memory of you, like the house of Basha and the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger, and because you have made Israel sin. Of Jezebel also the Lord has spoken, saying, The dogs will eat Jezebel in the district of Jezreel. The one belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs will eat. And the one who dies in the fields, the birds of the heaven will eat. What a terrible prophecy. But notice Ahab's response. Verse 27. It came about when Ahab heard these words that he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and fasted. And he lay in sackcloth and went about despondently. That was his response. So how does God respond to this wicked, wicked man. Notice verse 28. Then the word of the Lord, after that display, the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days, but I will bring the evil upon his house in his son's days. At the darkest moment in Israel's history, the reign of Ahab and Jezebel, God sends a message of grace. Remember who's reading this? It's the children of Israel who are now in Babylonian captivity, away from their country, reading about why they're there because of their rebellion against God, because of their idolatry. You see, the point... For the exiles in Babylon reading this history for the first time, as well as the point for us, is this. Regardless of your spiritual condition, if you will repent and humble yourself before God and turn from your sin, God will hear your prayer. Ahab's repentance was not full and complete. But there's another king we don't have time to look at whose whose repentance was complete. His name was Manasseh. And God, in spite of the incredible wickedness with which this man lived his life, when he humbled himself before God, when he repented, when he cried out to God, God responded in grace. The lesson, I think, of the kings is this. God is a just God, and he will deal with you according to your sin. But if you will ever bring yourself 
to the place where you're willing to humble yourself before God. You're willing to cry out for His mercy and grace. You're willing to turn from your sin. And God will hear. And He will respond in grace and forgiveness. Because our God, and this is the message of the Old Testament and the New, our God is a Savior by nature. He delights in rescue. This is our God. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part eight of his current series, An Aerial View of the Old Testament. Tom will have part nine for you on our next broadcast. Please join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And be sure to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.